This is the Northwestern Medicine Podcast on COVID-19, dated April 2nd, 2020. Welcome. This is Better Edge, a Northwestern Medicine Podcast for physicians. I'm Melanie Cole. Joining me in this panel today are Dr. Stephen Hanauer. He's a professor of medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology and the medical director of the Digestive Health Center at Northwestern Medicine. And Dr. Scott Strong, he's a professor of surgery in the Division of Gastrointestinal Surgery and surgical director of the Digestive Health Center at Northwestern Medicine. Gentlemen, I'm so glad to have you with us today, and today we're discussing key considerations for gastroenterologists in the context of COVID-19 and how the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology and Division of GI Surgery at Northwestern Medicine are evolving care. Thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Hanauer, I'd like to start with you. Tell us about the risks for patients with inflammatory bowel disease or other conditions who may be taking immunosuppressive drugs. Thank you for hosting us today, Melanie. I participate in a weekly teleconference of 70 inflammatory bowel disease experts from around the world regarding the impact of COVID on patients with inflammatory bowel disease. And these clinicians include uh, the United Kingdom, France, Italy, China, Spain, Hong Kong, Um, and many other countries. So we are constantly updated on what's going on in the world. In addition, there is an international registry called Secure IBD that is updated daily where clinicians have been entering data regarding any of their IBD patients who develop COVID and their outcomes according to their age and their medications so that we can track this. Fortunately, to answer your question, as of today, April 2nd, patients with inflammatory bowel disease do not seem to be at any increased risk of developing the COVID infection and parallel very much the general population. The primary risks are age, with older individuals being at greater risk, cigarette smoking, and there is a slight predominance of men over women, just as we see in the general population. Thus far, despite the recognized impact of immunosuppressive medications, we have not seen any particular medicine or group of medicine put patients at any specific increased risk. Thank you for that answer. Dr. Hanauer, should these patients continue taking their medications or delay treatment, and should they continue their infusion protocol? Do they still come in? What would you like them to know, and what would you like their primary care providers to know about advising them? The consensus among this international working group is that patients should continue taking their medications. The risk of a flare-up or complications of stopping medications greatly exceeds any risk of infection or complication of infections thus far. We do not recommend delaying treatment with either their ongoing oral medications, uh, injections, or infusions. All of the infusion centers are safe uh, for patients uh, who are uh, entering them and they are um, using precautions uh, 
regarding the uh, COVID uh, infection. So tell us a little bit, Dr. Hanauer, what extra precautions are you advising them to take to protect themselves if they are coming in for infusions or having to go out and get groceries? What would you like them to know? Well, the first precaution is most important, which is the same as the general population, which is social distancing and hygiene. Of late, there has been a change in recommendations regarding masks, and I would advise any patient on immunosuppressive medications to wear a mask if they are in uh, the public or certainly in the hospital environment. Indeed, any individual entering our hospital, which includes our um, uh, infusion center, will be provided with a mask and they will be queried as to whether or not they've had fever or any symptoms or exposure to anyone who has the COVID infection. Dr. Strong, how are you determining if a patient's surgery should continue or be postponed? Uh, Sure, that's a great question, Melanie, and it's a pleasure to be speaking with you and your audience. Um, This uh, COVID-19 has resulted in our hospitals and healthcare system being strained uh, by the number of critically ill patients. And for reasons of patient and provider safety, and to ensure that resources such as hospital beds and equipment are available to uh, those patients that are critically ill with the COVID-19. The CDC, as well as the American College of Surgeons, have kind of weighed in on this, and we're no longer uh, performing non-emergency procedures. They're being delayed. All elective cases have been postponed while emergency surgeries are proceeding as usual, but we're placing an emphasis on early operations so that we're decreasing patient length of stay, and we're using appropriate measures to avoid consuming some of these limited resources. And obviously, the patient's COVID status uh, also plays into uh, our treatment approach. Uh, we'll be rescheduling these uh, operations, but that'll depend on a variety of things, such as the speed at which this COVID crisis resolves, uh, the patient's health and uh, need for an operation, uh, our surgical team's schedule, and the availability of our facilities to schedule such procedures. Thank you for that answer, Dr. Strong. Dr. Hanauer, for just a minute, IBD patients sometimes have bowel obstructions. What do you want them to know if they start coming up with symptoms that they know could be an obstruction? What do you want them to know about calling their gastroenterologists or going into the ER, prednisone, things that are generally done when this happens sometimes? If the patient recognizes that they are developing increasing abdominal pain, nausea, or vomiting, uh, it's strongly recommended that they contact their clinician. It's pretty obvious that we're trying to avoid individuals walking into the emergency room as they are absolutely consumed with this virus and uh, risk actually uh, contacting individuals in that setting. Nevertheless, we are able to give them individual advice regarding uh, managing their symptoms at that time uh, and hopefully avoid having them present to an emergency room. That may be modifying their diet, as you mentioned. It may be uh, giving a course or uh, increasing a dose of medication, including uh, corticosteroids. But certainly, if a patient feels that they are in a crisis and have a greatly increasing abdominal pain or cannot maintain hydration, they should present to an emergency room. 
Dr. Strong, we're learning more about this virus every day. It seems that respiratory symptoms represent the most common manifestations, but what can you tell us about the gastrointestinal manifestations in patients with COVID? Yes, we're learning more about this as our experience with the infection evolves. And what we know from our colleagues in China is that about one half of patients that uh, present with, um, with COVID-19 infection will actually have a digestive symptom. Most commonly, it's a lack of appetite, which is kind of nonspecific. But if you look at those things that are really GI-specific, about a third will complain of diarrhea. And that's usually having a looser stool, maybe up to three times a day. Uh, whereas vomiting or abdominal pain are quite um, uncommon. Only about 2 to 4% of people will complain of that. And so um, it's unusual also for the digestive symptoms to occur without the presence of respiratory complaints. Um, but the, uh, the symptoms related to uh, the GI system seem to get more pronounced as the severity of the respiratory disease increases. So what, what's happening now is that some people are actually suggesting that it's maybe reasonable as testing becomes more available to test patients for the virus if they present with new GI symptoms and recent contact with a COVID-19 case, even if they don't have any fever or respiratory symptoms. Let me add that that's, uh, we're recognizing this increasingly, in particular since up to 20% of patients may have no symptoms even if they're infected. So minor changes in the bowel frequency or mild diarrhea may actually be a symptom in someone who has asymptomatic uh, respiratory disease. And for instance, one of the most common presentations is actually loss of taste, as Dr. Strong emphasized, or loss of smell. And that may be the only symptom of this virus. The problem is we don't have adequate testing uh, for individuals to see if these minor symptoms actually reflect an underlying exposure. That is so interesting. Doctors and Dr. Hanauer, are you aware if the virus can spread through fecal-oral transmission? And if so, what are the steps for preventing that spread? Well, I would only uh, state that it's possible that it could be spread through fecal-oral. There's very limited information around that because patients who are um, uh, sharing food, for instance, um, are also often face-to-face. So separating whether there is a foodborne um, uh, transmission is quite challenging at the present time. We do know, as you've suggested, Melanie, that uh, patients may actually continue to um, have virus in their stool for 20 days after their complete after their nasal swabs are clear. So we've emphasized hygiene as well as social distancing, and of course the first step in hygiene is hand washing, um, and so um, that would help to reduce any potential fecal-oral transmission. But as I said, thus far, we are not um, convinced that that is a major source of spread. Again, that's so interesting. Dr. Hanauer, sticking with you for a minute, how are you and your team at Northwestern evolving care for your patients during this pandemic? Well, it's quite interesting from our standpoint because we have been 
developing the potential for telehealth over the uh, past number of months, but this pandemic has thrust us into telehealth uh, absolutely immediately, and we're having to try to organize around that. There are currently two mechanisms of telehealth. One is a telephone call, and the other is a a video encounter. We are able to perform both. However, telephone calls are, are much easier and much more secure. There are a variety of different means of doing um, video health, but these continue to inv- evolve. They include using sources such as Zoom or uh, Microsoft Teams or Skyping. Thus far, the only secure means has been through um, Microsoft Teams, which requires a patient to download an application and, and makes uh, scheduling a little bit more uh, complicated. Nevertheless, similar to what's going around on around the country and around the world, virtually all of our visits have now been transformed to virtual or telehealth visits. We are only seeing patients who absolutely need a physical examination in the clinic, and that's to limit both exposure of patients and clinicians, as Dr. Strong emphasized. For those visits, patients will require uh, having a mask, and the practitioners will be uh, using uh, the uh, personal protective equipment, including mask, uh, gown, and gloves. Dr. Strong, how is your department deploying telehealth? What recommendations, as you're telling us this, do you have for other providers who'd like to implement telemedicine for their practices? Well, one, one of the benefits of the management of digestive diseases at Northwestern Medicine is that uh, Dr. Hanauer and I work in the same environment. And so uh, whatever Dr. Hanauer and his colleagues are doing, we're, we're doing the same. And so, uh, as he said, the, the future is, is now thrust upon us, and, and it's here now. And so we have kind of embraced this approach and found out that it's working very well. And, and some of the lessons that we learned are we, we maintain a schedule such that the patients know what time we're going to call, and that limits the number of missed calls and, and, and repeat calls. And we also have been working with our reimbursement folks to, uh, to make sure that uh, we know how to appropriately, the terminology that we need to use to appropriately um, document these these encounters uh, with our patients, and the patients seem to to rather enjoy it. They, I think they find that it's um, obviously safer th- for them, but also more convenient. And we're able to, um, you know, kind of think outside the box a little bit. We have them sending in uh, a lot of our appointments are for post-operative visits, and so we're having patients just taking a photograph of uh, any wounds or any uh, areas of concern and, and sending those to us so that we have them available before the visit. And um, as Dr. Hanauer mentioned, um, the, the telephone encounters are much easier to do than the video encounters, uh, and that's because of protection of personal health information. And But I think that as all of this evolves and will evolve rather rapidly over the ensuing uh, months, um, and, and even weeks, that uh, that will become a resource that's much more readily available to all of us. So the, uh, the future is now, and uh, I would encourage people to really embrace this technology 
because if there are any benefits of uh, this pandemic, this is one of them in that it's really helped to force the issue. And I think that both patients and providers are really benefiting from that. Well, Dr. Strong, before we wrap up, give us your final thoughts as a surgeon. What would you like other providers, other gastroenterologists to know about COVID and IBD, GI issues, and take this forward to their patients? Yeah, so I'll mention about the surgical aspects and then leave uh, the, the, the medical approach to, to Dr. Hanauer. But it, it's really it's a, a time of change, and we're trying to be as reactive as possible. And I think a lot of our national organizations, such as the American College of Surgeons and our individual societies, have really stepped up to help create guidelines and to really rethink how we're approaching this. Uh, no one knows when it'll end, and the curve coming down will probably be uh, less steep and more prolonged than the curve going up. But I think that we just all need to uh, to be um, responsible in how we manage this and understand that it's a very stressful time for everyone, uh, our, our coworkers as well as our patients, and to be understanding in that and uh, and to really reach out individuals and communicate more but uh, we'll get all through all of this and uh, it's just going to be a matter of time but uh, people need to be understanding and accepting and and of it I think that uh, we may have some new tools coming out of it that that we didn't have going in. Dr. Hanauer last word to you what would you like other providers gastroenterologists and primary care providers to know about treating their patients during COVID-19 and what you're doing there at Northwestern Medicine to help patients and healthcare providers. Thank you. Well, as Dr. Strong emphasized, the future is now. Um, telemedicine is in place. It's evolving, but it will be the future. From a practitioner standpoint, uh, we need to uh, continue to understand how this is going to impact the finances of medicine and reimbursement for subsequent telehealth uh, as we move forward. As far as our current treatment is concerned, we are treating inflammatory bowel disease the same way. We are not stopping medications. However, as we would for general infections, if patients do develop a viral infection or a serious infection, their uh, immunosuppressive medicines will be temporarily on hold, and we will not initiate therapy with immunosuppressive medicines if patients uh, have evidence of an active infection. But there are several other areas where this is going to be transformative. One of the problems at the present time is that this pandemic has virtually put clinical trials for new medications on hold. Um, I do anticipate in the future uh, artificial intelligence, uh, patient home monitoring is going to be increasingly utilized within the telehealth um, mechanisms. And I would also emphasize that this international and national pandemic is going to change the way our systems interact. Right now, we've heard the governors complain that they are competing with other states for resources. All of the systems are um, competing with other systems for resources and a greater integration at the local, state, 
and national levels for health care is inevitable. Despite these changes in health care, we need you to know that Northwestern medicine is up, is running, is available to our colleagues and our patients for ongoing chronic and acute care. That is great information. Thank you so much, doctors, for joining us today and sharing your incredible expertise today in these unprecedented times. That concludes this episode of Better Edge, a Northwestern Medicine podcast for physicians. To refer your patient or for more information on COVID-19, please visit our website at nm.org to get connected with one of our providers. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and all the other Northwestern Medicine podcasts. I'm Melanie Cole.